right, good morning. Welcome to Journey Church. My name is Jim. If you're with us for the first time, I want to say welcome. Uh, believe it or not, we've created this place with you in mind, and we have a gift for you. Uh, take out one of our volunteers on the way out this morning, and they'll be happy to get you that gift. If you're joining us for online the first time, thank you for being here. We hope, uh, we're glad you're here for this time. We hope it's definitely not your last time. Uh, we're in part five of a series called You're Not the Boss of Me. Before we jump into that, I just want to kind of uh, piggyback on what Brian said earlier about our volunteers. Um, throughout the, the beginning of this pandemic, when COVID hit, all, you know, all Sunday morning volunteers basically got the Sunday off. Um, but Jeremy showed up every week um, with me in here alone as we continued to record these messages. Then he'd edit them for me. Um, can't, can't say enough how much we appreciate his incredible hard work and his sacrifice for this. Um, but this goes without saying, every volunteer has sacrificed to make Journey happen. Um, we, we have this running joke on our leadership team. I'm the only person who gets paid to be here. Everybody else comes here out of their own goodwill and their own sacrifice. Um, we talk about Journey being a family. That is where you feel like you're part of the family. If you're wondering how to connect to Journey, you should join a serving team. And that's not because we, we need you desperately. It's because that's where you connect and you feel like you're part of what's happening here as a church. Join a serving team. Get to know your team. It feels like a family. They, they love what they do. We told somebody this week uh, there was a complication with our, our youth ministry, so they had to take a week off. And there was a, like literal tears and emotions because they wouldn't be able to see their kids during the week. They love what they do. They love creating a place that feels like home, a place that feels like a family. Uh, so for every person who volunteers, whether you're serving this Sunday or you're at home watching this message or you're sitting here listening to me, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for making Journey a reality. Thank you for making a place that feels so incredible, even in the midst of, of what's chaos in the world. Uh, you can come here on a Sunday morning for an hour and get a little piece, a good cup of coffee, and a friendly face greeting you. And that wouldn't be possible without so many of you that sacrifice for this church. So thank you for volunteering. For those of you who aren't, you totally should. It's amazing. Join the team. Be a part of it. Be a part of the family. We would love to have you there. So <coughs> that being said, Part five of a series called You Are Not the Boss of Me. This is a how-to series. So there's a kind of a tag that we've gone along with this, and the how-to is how to control uh, the emotions that compete for control. We all have emotions in us. We all have emotions that compete for control of, of our, our, our lives, our, our mouth, our moods. And uh, these emotions, like our mouth and our moods, they, they tend to get us uh, in some, really, some hot water sometimes, some trouble, especially in our relationships. And when we don't learn how to control these emotions, these emotions learn very quickly how to control us. Uh, and they lead us to do things that we wouldn't uh, otherwise really want to do. Uh, we talked about a few things so far. We've talked about envy. We've talked about um, anger. We've talked um, about, I'm missing one, envy, anger, guilt. We talked about guilt and shame. Um, so you should check those messages out if you're not here. But this week, we're going to talk about one thing. Uh, and this is one thing that Jesus had an awful lot to say about. And what we're going to talk about this week is fear. Fear. Fear is not going to be the boss of you. That's our hope for this, this whole message. Jesus said, said a lot about fear, uh, and, and what we're hoping is, is that really you would understand his words, and, and really we'll give you the bottom line really quick up front, but how to live out the bottom line of, of fear and how to not let fear control of us. Here's what I do know about all of us, whether I know you or not. None of us want fear to be the boss of us, do we? None of us want to be controlled by fear. None of us want fear to kind of run our lives and dictate our actions and, and, and how we interact with in relationships. Uh, but, but what's really kind of interesting about fear is fear um, kind of comes with this good thing and, and this bad thing. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But fear is, is a byproduct. And this is, uh, fear is just a byproduct. Fear is a byproduct. And here's what we know of, of all humans. This is really interesting. This is kind of the thing that almost makes us a little bit human. Fear is a byproduct. If you can go to the next slide. <coughs> of our ability to accumulate, accumulate knowledge and project it into the future. 
Fear is a byproduct of our ability to accumulate knowledge. This is what, what humans have done, right? Over the course of years and years and years, we've accumulated knowledge. We've, we've learned more, and, and we've kind of built on this knowledge base, and, and that's progressed society as a whole. We've, we've had this ability to accumulate knowledge and then kind of look into the future. And, and sometimes we look into the future, and it's a very good thing. And sometimes we look into the future, and it can be a, a little bit of a risky thing. But this is what sets humans apart, really, as a human race is that we can, we can accumulate this knowledge as a, a society where, where we are because for years and years we've accumulated knowledge. We've passed it down from generation to generation to generation. It's one of God's greatest gifts to, to, to really to human beings. If we didn't have this ability to accumulate knowledge and look into the future, we, we wouldn't be able to say things like this, like, I can't wait. Right? This is the good side. I can't wait for the Thanksgiving meal this week. We have an expectation based on what we know or what we've seen or maybe what we've experienced before. Like we know the turkey's going to be good and maybe you live for the sides or maybe you live for the pie afterwards. But we just have this, this anticipation. I can't wait. I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait for the holidays and, and all the joy that it brings and the Christmas carols and the movies and the cookies and, and the hot chocolate, whatever it might be. We have this anticipation. And that's because of this ability to accumulate knowledge, to, to have lived and have experienced and to be able to, to have expectations about the future and what the future will hold. But what's interesting about, about this ability, and this is kind of the backside of fear, is although it creates this, this anticipation, this, this I can't wait attitude, it, it's also coupled with, with kind of an infinite possibility of what ifs. Right? What ifs? What ifs is just this concern about, about the future, what the future might hold because of what we can see now or maybe what we can see now but we can't see in the future. And it creates some worry. It, it can create some fear. And if you've ever played the what if game, and I've talked to some of you, I know you have, it's, it's endless, right? No matter what answer you come up with, there's another what if, but what if, but what if? And, and then, okay, but what if that? And, and then what if else? It, it's this ability within us. And, and fear, like some of you, really, you, you kind of look out at maybe the person sitting next to you, or you think about your kids, and you think, you know, you could possibly use a little more fear. You're just totally reckless. Maybe a little fear would be good for you. But for others of us, this runs our life. Fear manipulates and controls, and, and, and we feel limited. We're scared to go outside. We're scared to do things. We're scared to ever take a risk because of the possibility of a what if. Because for years and years and years, we've accumulated knowledge. We've accumulated experience. We, we pass it down from generation to generation, and we know that there could be some risk. There could be some danger. So we, we fail to move. We fail to act. And, and therefore, fear becomes the boss of us. And any time one of these emotions, whether it's fear, anxiety, worry, any time one of these emotions becomes the boss of us, we get a little off balance. And we get a little off balance, we begin to behave ways we shouldn't, we begin to say things we shouldn't. Years later, we tend to step back and say, how did I get here? Why would I have done that? It's because these emotions have become the boss of us. The, the emotions have taken control. The emotions have led us to be, be and do things that we would not want to do. Jesus said so much about fear. And what's really interesting is he talks about fear often, but the way he resolves fear is very, very simple, very easy. It's really, it's like two words. So I'm going to give you the bottom line in case you have to, you know, take off or, you know, you're online and you skip over to another browser. Here's the bottom line in case you're on your way out. Here's what Jesus has to say about here. You ready? It's really easy. Fear not. Just, just stop it. Just don't fear anymore. Really, that's what he's saying. In our words, he would just say, just don't let fear be the boss of you. To which we're all thinking, yeah, that sounds great, but like that's no help at all. But that's anytime Jesus would talk about fear, anytime he would address fear in his disciples or fear in people, fear in the world, his simple response is, fear not. Don't let fear be the boss of you. He has so much to say about fear. We're going we're to look at some of 
Jesus' life with his disciples, with, with the, the, the crowd of people that he kind of walked with. Because we tend to kind of, and I don't know if you read the Bible this way or if you grew up in church, maybe this was kind of your experience. We kind of dive into this like isolated experience in Jesus' life and it's, whoa, that's amazing. And then we jump out, right? We just kind of bookend it like, whoa, look what he did here once upon a time. And then there's the end and we just skip on to something else. But we're going to look at this event in Jesus' life that, that really you need in context of, of how it begins and how he wants to conclude it. It's a, it's a story, or rather stories, I'm assuming you're all familiar with. If you've been in church at all, you've definitely heard this story. If you grew up in Sunday school, this is one of their favorite stories because it's so fantastic. <clears throat> but we're going to pick up with Jesus and his crowd of followers. Every, if you've been here for a while, you know everywhere Jesus went, there's a crowd. Everywhere Jesus went, there, there's just a group of people that follow him. Some, some gospel writers refer to it as the crowd. Some gospel writers refer to it as the disciples. But then within this crowd of people, there's a group of disciples. And this is like a smaller group, maybe just a, a 70 or, or 100 about. They kind of went everywhere with Jesus. And then within that group, there's even a more isolated, a, a smaller group. Some uh, gospelers refer to this group as the disciples. Others refer to it as the apostles. For us, this is the 12. This is the 12 disciples or apostles that Jesus chose to, to be like his closest. I mean, just imagine that. How amazing is that? They get to be like the closest people to Jesus, the inner circle. They get to know every detail of Jesus' ministry and life. It's just amazing. He chooses these guys. They never thought it would happen. He picks them out, and as he begins to, to, to pick out, he, he's, he's trying to test them. <clears throat> it's almost like his whole ministry. He's trying to, to, to test the waters. Are you ready? Fear not. And then there's a test. And Fear not, and then there's a test. And, and here's where it's going. Jesus tells them often, I don't want you to be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. Here, here's the thing, guys. Just fear not. And then he would give them a test. And this is where we're going to pick up. Jesus tells them, his disciples, he kind of gathers them all together. And he says, here's the, the deal, guys. Here's kind of the, the unwritten code in our contract. You're going to follow me, and then I'm going to leave, and I'm going to send you out. Like, oh, this is amazing. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. And we're like, that's just a weird thing. But in this society, they've seen that happen. They know what happens when sheep go out among wolves, right? It is just a bloody, gory mess. There's like nothing left but like a hoof or two and a pile of fur and a bunch of blood. Like it's graphic and it's gory. And Jesus is like, guys, this is so awesome. Come and follow me and I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. And, and they're thinking like, are you serious? Well, what, what are you talking about? But then he, he concludes it this way. Just don't be afraid. Okay, Jesus, how does that make any sense? You're gonna, you want me to follow you, and then you're going to send me out into this dangerous world? And you, you said it's going to be like sheep among wolves. And, 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 and for some of these apostles, this is what happened, right? They, they go out, and later in their life, they get arrested, and they get some of them are executed. Some of them live in prison. Like, th these awful things happen. But he follows up with, yeah, guys, just don't be afraid. And, and if you're anything like me, I read that, and I think to myself, how is that possible? Like, Jesus, you're really smart, and you don't need any help. That doesn't make any sense to me. How, how can I live without that kind of fear? Because the truth was, they were afraid. They were very afraid. So Jesus said, I got an idea. Let's go on field trips. You guys like field trips? When I was in school, I loved field trips. I mean, anything to get out of school, right? He said, let's, let, let's stop learning. Let's take a break from the books. Let's go on a field trip. Let's get in a boat, and we'll go over there to the, to the other side of the sea. So he gets his disciples and this is where our story picks up. This is what Matthew tells us. <clears throat> then he gets into a boat with his disciples, and his disciples follow him because that's what disciples do. They follow Jesus. And it's, you're kind of like, you know, this is what's going to happen next, guys. It's your own fault because you follow Jesus. Well, they follow Jesus. They get into a boat with him. 
They begin to set off across the Sea of Galilee. And then suddenly, a furious storm, not like a, a, a raging wind, not like a storm, but a furious storm. And, and keep in mind, th- these are, are men who, who fished for a living. They're used to this. They're used to the Sea of Galilee. They're used to, to storms. This is a part of their life. So when they talk about like a furious storm, you get the idea that these guys are letting you know this isn't like a typical storm that rolls through. This is a bad storm. <clears throat> In this part of the world, it, it, it's, it's like typical for, for storms to kind of come through the valley and to just rage and wreak havoc. This is one of those moments. They're in the boat, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, they're with Jesus. Suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake so that waves swept over the boat. They're in this, they're in this small boat. These aren't like big boats like yachts. They're in this small fishing boat, barely fits 12 guys and Jesus. And the waves are pouring over the side. Water's pouring in faster than they can get the water out. <clears throat> and then something happens. They're in the boat. Water's pouring in. And where's Jesus? Jesus was sleeping. Which, I mean, I'm not saying this is, is accurate because the gospel doesn't include this, but I tend to think, and maybe you think this way if you think critically, surely he was faking. Right? Like, <laughs> it's the middle of a storm. Water's pouring over the boat. There's standing water in the bottom of the boat. Surely he's faking. I mean, if you've ever been near the water or on the water in a boat in the middle of a storm, it's loud, right? Like, it's so loud, the wind's whipping. And this isn't like pretty wind, like rock star Jesus where the hair's flowing and the wind's just, no, it's like the, the rain's coming sideways, wind is thrashing, hair's like flapping around and stuck to their face. It is a violent, raging storm. And they're, it, it's so loud, they have to like yell at each other. So what I'm going to say next I'm, I'm going to try not to yell because I can get loud and then people think I'm judging. I'm not, this isn't that way at all. <clears throat> I, I'm simply telling you this is how the disciples had to talk because it's so loud. The raging water's coming into the boat and Jesus is sleeping. And then the disciples, they went to wake him up. And they don't wake him up like you're waking up your kid. If you have a deep sleeper like us, it's not like, honey, like, Jesus, get up. No, no, no. They're scared. They think they're going to die. And the wind is thrashing and it's loud. It, it goes a little bit more like this. Jesus, save us, Jesus, wake up. Like they're just like panic. There is fear. They think we're going to drown. We're going to die. I mean, there is this this overwhelming fear gripping their hearts. Fear in this moment is the boss of them. And I love this part. We're going to find out later. Jesus doesn't even get up. It's like he's asleep or maybe faking it, laying on his side. They come to him, Jesus, wake up, we're going to die. And he kind of props himself up on his elbow. This is what it says. He just replies to where, right from where he is. He replied, oh, you of little faith. And it's like, what? You, you of what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's smiling. Like just, oh, you of little faith. Jeez, I couldn't hear you. It's so loud with the wind and the waves. What did you say again? You of little faith. And then he asked maybe like the most obvious question in the world. Like, thank you, Captain Obvious. Why are you so afraid? And it's like, are you missing this? Look around. We're standing in water in a boat on a lake in the middle of a storm. We think we're going to die. Jesus, you're about to drown. Aren't you scared? We may die. You may die. Our circumstances are telling us the worst is coming, Jesus. We're scared. Aren't you? How many of us feel that way sometimes? Let me ask you a very obvious question, if I could be Jesus for a minute. How many have felt that way in the last eight months? Jesus, I love this. 
not concerned, not panicked, not overwhelmed by the circumstances. And maybe that's all you need to hear this morning is that you have a Savior and you have a God who's not panicked, who doesn't get panicked in the middle of circumstances, in the middle of circumstances like these, in the middle of the worst, he is calm. He's still laying down. Look at what, look at what Matthew says next. Then when he finally got up, as if he's still laying on his side on his one arm, laughing at the disciples. When he finally gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. Now, I said before, storms kind of come through this valley and go across the Sea of Galilee, and they can roll in fast, and they can roll out really fast. Maybe, maybe that's what happened. But Jesus spoke up, or stood up rather. He spoke to the waves, and immediately the storm moved through. And in that moment, the disciples, like their confidence, their boldness in Jesus was greater than it's ever been in their lives. The men in the boat, the disciples, they were amazed. I mean, obviously, right? Like, who wouldn't have been amazed in that moment? They were amazed. And then they asked a question. And, and to be honest, I think this is the best question you could ask. If you're not familiar with church or you're not a Christ follower or a church goer, you don't believe in, in Christianity and You've had questions about faith. You know, you may wrestle with, you know, is there a God? Did he really create the universe? And are there really like a billion stars? Like, those are all fun things to talk about. But those aren't the most important question. They ask the most important question about Jesus. And really, it's the question that all of you have to answer at one point in your life. Who is this man? What kind of a man is this? What kind of a man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of a man is Jesus? That he could stand up in the middle of a storm after sleeping in standing water on a boat and speak to the waves and have the waves listen. When Peter told Mark the story, we believe that Peter was, was illiterate, that he couldn't write. <clears throat> so Peter later tells this guy named Mark who kind of writes down Peter's story. And that's why we call it the gospel of Mark because Mark wrote it down for Peter. But Mark wasn't there. Mark wasn't a disciple. Peter was. Peter told Mark the story. And then Peter says this, I, <clears throat> There's no better way to say it than how Peter did. I love it. He says, they feared a great fear. The Greek word there is like, they feared a greater fear. Right? They're in the boat and the storm's raging and, and, and they're, they're worried. They're fearful. But then they realize whose presence they're standing in. And they're more scared. They're more fearful of whose presence they're standing in than the emotions they experienced minutes ago where they thought they were going to drown in the middle of a furious storm. They feared a greater fear. For a moment, this, I love this part, for a moment, for a fleeting moment, their confidence in Jesus overwhelmed their fear. For a moment, they could see what Jesus was talking about. There's someone greater. There's something greater. I, I don't have to fear the storm that I'm in because of the person who's in the storm with me. And they feared not. What's interesting is that this was a fleeting moment. For a moment, they got Jesus' point. For a moment, they lived it out. But then it didn't stick. A few weeks later, <clears throat> they're doing the same thing. This is, again, you have to track for the story because we, we dive into that story. We think, oh, that's amazing. Jesus has power over nature. It's like, no, no, no. Jesus' point wasn't even... The, the, the power over nature. Jesus' point was to do something even greater than that. Jesus gets his disciples together just a, a day or two later and says, okay, guys, here, here's what we're going to do. I want to follow up on our little field trip. Right? We had a field trip. You all failed. You all did terrible. <clears throat> he said, here's, 
let, let, let me give you an illustration of nature of, of what I'm trying to get to. Let, let, me, let me illustrate my point. And then he says it this way. He says, don't be afraid <coughs> of those <coughs> who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And, and let me kind of tease this out. And, and I'm not putting words in Jesus' mouth because he clearly need, needs no help from me. Don't be afraid of those who can hurt you. Don't be afraid of those who can intimidate you or threaten your physical body. That's just one kind of fear. Don't be scared of that. Rather, or maybe be scared of, the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of of the one who can only hurt you physically. When there's something greater, who if they wanted to, could destroy everything. That there's, we've always believed it, that there's more to you than meets the eye. There's more to you than just the body. There's there's a soul or there's a spirit. There's something that's going to continue to go on forever inside of you. Don't be scared of, of this of people who can only hurt one side. Be scared of the one who can hurt both sides. Although he would say, you don't have to be scared. Jesus is saying to them, guys, you remember the boat ride? You were afraid of the wrong thing. Don't be scared of that. And, and then he jumps to this other illustration. He says, are two sparrows, are two sparrows sold for a penny? To which we would think, I have no idea what a, tar- a sparrow sells for. But to them, in their world, in their context, like, yeah, that's exactly what they're sold for. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of the Father's care. Or his way of saying, hey, hey guys, <clears throat> even a sparrow that's as worthless as a half a penny, not one of them dies without the Father knowing. Not one of them dies. Not one of them goes down without the Father having care and knowing what happened. Jesus, that's amazing. Then he makes it even more personal. I love this point. He makes it so personal, even for you and for me. He says, and even, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, some of us more than others. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You don't have anything to be scared of. Your father knows you. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what you're experiencing. He knows the things you've wrestled with. He knows the fears that are controlling you. He knows the worry you have about the future, about your kids, about society, about the government, whatever they might be. He knows what's going on. And he cares for you. That's why you don't have to be scared. And for some of you, for some of us, guys, that's, that's exactly what you need to hear this morning. That no matter what it is you're feeling, no matter what it is that you feel is gripping you, no matter what's making you scared, Jesus wants to reassure you. God knows and God cares. That's why you don't have to be scared. The situation may be there. The, the prayer might, might go unanswered. But you don't have a God who's sitting on the sidelines completely oblivious to what's happening to you. He knows even the very number of hairs on your head. And he loves you. And he's for you. It's almost like the disciples are finally starting to get it. And then Jesus wants to test him a little more. You guys remember the story. This is a very famous story. A few days later, he's out and he's speaking. He's in the middle of nowhere. There's crowds. I mean, this is like thousands of people sitting on this mountainside. The Bible says there's 5,000 men, which we tend to think if you included the women and the children, which they didn't in this society, it would be over 10,000 people. He's speaking and he's speaking for a long time. So Somebody said, I, I sleep for a long time. Like, God, this is nothing. He's speaking for so long. They haven't eaten all day. So much so the disciples come to Jesus kind of worried. Like, Jesus, these people are going to die. You got to send them home. They're starving. Like, a, a, wrap it up. You've been out it all day. Let these people go home and eat. And Jesus is thinking, no, you know what? You guys feed them. And they start laughing like, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, whatever. 
Just dismiss them and send them home. No, 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 no. You feed them. Jesus, we don't have enough money to feed them. There isn't enough food in this region to feed this many people. I know. You feed them. Remember the story, right? Jesus finds a little boy's lunch, and he prays over, and he blesses it, and then he breaks it, and he hands it to the disciples. And the disciples, if they were saying this story, they say, guys, the most amazing thing has happened. He included me in his miracle. I, I mean, I don't know how it happened. He handed me some bread, and I just started handing it out. And I handed out enough bread for 10,000 people, and I had barrels left over. Like, it was amazing. We fed 10,000 people. We had all this food left over. It was like, I was part of his miracle. It was incredible. And then immediately, the text tells us, immediately, as in as soon as it kind of dawned on them what they had just experienced, what they had been a part of, immediately, Jesus, <clears throat> you can go to that next verse for me, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And this word, this Greek word for made, is like he had to coerce them. He had to force them. And why would he have to force them to get into the boat? Because they remember how it went last time, right? Like, Jesus, I'm not, I'm not playing this game. We just did this like a week ago. We know what happens when we go in boats with you. I'm not, and no, Jesus forced him. No, 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 get in the boat. I, Jesus, I don't want to get in. Peter, you know, the outspoken, like the type A guy, Jesus, I'm not getting in the boat. Peter, get in the boat. He had to force him. He had to coerce him to get into the boat, and then he pushed them out into the water. Because they know the boat experience. They know what's coming. It's another field trip. It's another test. I don't want to take another test. I don't want another boat ride. I'm beginning to experience it, Jesus. We just did something amazing. Just let me go on. No, no, no. He, get in the boat. Pushes them off. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And then he said, basically, go on ahead to the other side while I stay here and I dismiss the crowd. I'm not even going with you guys, to which they're thinking, oh, we're off to a bad story already. Pushes them off into the boat. They begin to kind of row and you know, towards or the other side, a few part of the sea. They're at this for hours. They're, they're, they must be going into like a headwind. They just, they weren't making any progress. These are fishermen. These are guys who are used to this. They're at it and they're rowing and they're rowing and they're getting nowhere. Hours pass. And then shortly before dawn, you know this story. You've heard this before. This is the fantastic story, right? Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And we hear this, and if you grew up in church, like, well, this is just another thing Jesus did. That's fantastic. But if you're not familiar with church, if you're not a churchgoer, if you, if, if you think this whole religious thing is, is a stretch anyway, you're probably thinking, Jim, you know, I could roll with you through the whole, like, you know, Jesus stood up and he spoke to the waves and the wind, and, and you know, maybe that was just the time the storm was naturally moving out anyway. But if, to, to be a Christian, if it means i got to believe that Jesus walked on water, like, I just can't roll with you. Here's what you need to know. I get it. As Christians, we don't believe Jesus walked on water because the Bible told us so. We believe Jesus walked on water because Matthew, who was there, the tax collector, he was there and he told us so. We believe because Peter, who, who you know, Peter's this, this just radical disciple who, who's, who's type A and, and, and failed in, in the first test and is going to fail in this test, that Peter who was there who told his story to Mark, he was there and he told us so. John, John the, the beloved, John who was with Jesus from the banks uh, on, the, on the Jordan River when Jesus was, was baptized to the end when Jesus is crucified and then he's resurrected. John who was with him the entire time. John was there and these three men serve as eyewitnesses to this account. These three men would say, I know it sounds fantastic. I know it sounds unbelievable. We didn't want to believe either. As you're going to see in just a moment, they didn't think it was Jesus. But I'm telling you, somehow it happened. You see, there's this, this thing that, that uh, literary critics use, and this may be like, 
not sound not important to you, but I think it's incredibly important. There's th- th- this, this criteria that literary critics use called the criteria of embarrassment, and we've talked about this before. And the criteria basically says this. In any ancient writing, if someone's writing about this revered man or this man to be respected, and they include something maybe embarrassing, or they include something that would make this man in any way look less than what they want him to be, that it must be true. Because no one's going to write something in this ancient culture about somebody they want you to respect and somebody they want you to know and include something that's going to embarrass them. They wouldn't do that. More so, and these are people who've kind of like looked at the Gospels with, with this critical eye of, I don't believe it, this is kind of nonsense, I don't follow Christianity. But towards like the end of their life, they begin to accept what the Gospels say and they begin to accept that Jesus may have done what he's actually done. It's because they look at this and they think, the guys who wrote this, who were the heroes of the story, they don't write themselves as heroes of the story. They write themselves as as normal people. In most cases, they write themselves as people who are less than, people who are illiterate, people who aren't smart, people who continually, time and time again, make mistake after mistake after mistake. Why would they write this? Because it happened. Because they were eyewitnesses. Because... Before this, they were sitting right where you were saying, absolutely not. I don't believe it. That's nonsense. And then on the other side, something changed. When the disciples saw him walking on water, saw him walking on the lake, obviously, they were terrified. They yell out, it's a ghost. Not, oh, it's Jesus. He's bringing us a break. It's a ghost. They were horrified. They didn't believe it either. They cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Guys, you have nothing to be scared of. And we read this, and and I'm sure when, you know, the gospel writers are writing this in, it's like, do I really want to include this? Because this makes me look like an idiot. I just failed the test the first time, and I'm not getting it the second time, and now I failed again the third time. When Peter's reciting a story to Mark, I'm sure Mark's thinking, Peter, do you really want me to put this in there? And he's thinking, I'm telling you, like, I know it doesn't make me look good. I'm a fisherman. I lived on the water. I shouldn't have been scared. But you got to include it. Because it actually happened. It is I. Do not be afraid. Translation, guys, as long as I am here, as long as I am with you, there is no need for you to be afraid. No matter what storm you're facing, no matter how bad it looks from where you're sitting, no, no matter how overwhelmed you are with, with the anxiety and the worry and, and you know, the concerns about the future, take courage because I am with you. You have nothing to be scared of. Or maybe you do. Maybe there's something to be scared of. But there's something greater to fear. And that person, that somebody, is in your very presence right now. They got into the boat. They got over to the other side. They continued to do ministry. Here's the thing. In that moment, they believed, and their boldness and their confidence in Jesus was great. But it didn't stick again. And and that part almost makes me happy. And you might be thinking, Jim, why would you be happy that it didn't stick again? Because of what's coming. They get off to the other side. They they go about ministry as usual. They keep doing what they're doing. They they come up to the end of Jesus' ministry, right? They make their way into Jerusalem. And 
they think this is it. This is Jesus' time because they're greeted by crowds of people screaming his name, saying Hosanna and laying the palm branches down. And they're, they're thinking, this is it. He's going into Jerusalem. He's going to be, you know, the king. He's going to pull off, we'd always say this, like, pull off his rabbinic robes and there's going to be the, the K on his chest with the flowing cape. And this is what we've waited our entire lives for. This is it. He's going to do it. He gets into Jerusalem. They're there for about a week and then he has this Passover meal with his disciples. And, and, and at this dinner, he basically unfolds what's about to happen. Hey, guys, I know you've been waiting for this. Here's the thing. I'm about to establish a brand new covenant, a new covenant between God and his people. It's not going to be like the old way with all the sacrifices and temple system and priests. It's a brand new thing that you've been waiting your whole life for. And now they're, they're, they're like, their excitement is just like bubbling over. Like, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. And not only am I going to give you a brand new covenant, I've already told you about this new movement. I'm starting my ecclesia, my gathering, my church. And I told you nothing, nothing is going to be able to stop it. Their excitement is building more. I can't believe this. this. He's about to do what we know he's about to do. He's going to come in as king. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to establish the kingdom of God. And oh yeah, this new covenant and this new movement, I'm also going to give you a new command. And this new command is, is the greatest command, to love one another as I have loved you. It's about As I'm about to love you, I want you to love people that way. They are just overwhelmed. I mean, this is what they had dreamed of, but it's what they never thought would happen in their lives. It's what their parents had told them. One day this might happen but they never thought it would happen with them, that God's Messiah would come, that God's Messiah would take over and establish his kingdom and kick out the Romans and rule the world again. And they get to be a part of it. This was exactly what they had been hoping for. But then the impossible happens. You know the story. Later that night, Jesus is arrested. He's wrongly accused. He's beaten within an inch of his life. And he's crucified. And everything Jesus told them in a moment, it's all gone. All gone. There's no more covenant. There's no more movement. There's no more. I mean, it can't be. I mean, for a moment, we believe. You guys, you remember the boat story? You know, we were out there, and he spoke to the waves, and we said, what kind of a man is this? Like, we thought this was, we thought this was God's Messiah. We thought nobody could do what he's doing. But Rome can't kill God's Messiah. And Jesus is dead. So clearly, he can't be God's Messiah. Everything, everything in that moment was undone. Everything Jesus taught, everything he said about himself, either they misunderstood or he lied. But everything is out the window. They couldn't believe because their Messiah was dead. And then three days later, they stare into an empty tomb and they meet their risen friend and they're back on it. Back to business. It's like, this is it. He's back. He did what he said he would do. He, he predicted his own death, his own resurrection, and he did it. We're, we're back. This, this boldness, like I, I can believe, I can believe everything he said. I can believe in the covenant. I can believe in the movement. I can believe in the command. Here's the thing. The world didn't change. The world was still an incredibly scary place for these men and women. But they had learned to fear not. They had learned to trust Jesus. They had learned to have more fear in, in, in this, this son of God who was with them than in the circumstances they were facing. They had learned to trust Jesus and who he was. And so they, it didn't matter what the world did to them. It didn't matter what the circumstances were. These are men who moments ago would run and would hide. They, they, they hid and they lied. Peter, you know Peter, the outspoken, the, the most notorious of the disciples who was like in your face all the time. He's the guy who ran and hide. When Jesus was crucified, did they stand by their man? No, they ran. They hid. They lied. Jesus, uh, Peter rather, he cursed out a little girl for accusing him of being with Jesus. 
And then he meets Jesus risen. And he faces down the same men and women who crucified his Savior. And he looks at them and he accuses them of murdering his friend. And he takes the message and he changes the world. Because that's what not fearing does. You see, for us, the resurrection is Easter. Maybe it's a dinner and some chocolate eggs. For them, the resurrection was everything. The resurrection was the source of their hope. It was the source of their courage. Jesus' resurrection put everything back on, on top. Jesus' resurrection made everything make sense. Jesus' resurrection meant everything. It wasn't a Sunday morning ritual once a year. It was every single day. I can live, I can breathe, I cannot be afraid because of what Jesus has done for me. The world remained a scary place. Most of the men who followed after Jesus would go the route that Jesus had predicted, a sheep among wolves. They would be arrested and they would be beaten and they would be executed. But they feared not because they had finally learned their lesson. All those lessons on the boat, they finally learned the boat lesson. Fear not, for I am with you. And that fear not, that fear not changed the world. It did it once. And guys, it can do it again. There was a second century writer who, who was a medical writer. And in Roman culture, you weren't allowed to ever examine a dead body. When a body was dead, you couldn't examine it, you couldn't touch it. It was, you know, a sacred thing. So, so medical science kind of came to a screeching halt in that society. Well, what med medical writers and physicians had to do was they tried to examine bodies that were dying, but not fully dead. This one writer, Claudius Gallinus, he would sit on the sidelines in the Roman Colosseum after the gladiatorial games and after the lions would devour Christians. And then he would wait, and once they kind of removed the animals from the, from the, uh, from the, the Colosseum, once they removed all, all the gladiators from the Colosseum, these physicians and medical writers were allowed to go and examine the people who were dying. These Christians who were being executed for their faith. Here's what a second century medical writer had to say about the Christians who were being persecuted for their faith as they were dying. He said, for fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every single day. It's really hard to intimidate and threaten somebody who isn't scared of death anymore. And this is what the first century Christians did. They weren't scared. Jesus said, don't be scared of somebody who can hurt your body. Be scared of one who can hurt your body and your soul. All the Romans could do was hurt our body. Every day, being offered to animals, being offered in games to watch them die, they were fearless because death didn't scare them anymore. They had somebody with them who not just conquered life, but conquered death and said, you don't have to be scared because I'm with you always, even to the very end. The world may not change. It may stay a scary place. Things may seem uncertain. There may be worry. There may be anxiety. But fear not, because I have overcome the world, and I am with you always. Don't be afraid. Peter, and I'll conclude with this. Peter, the disciple, you know, this is the, the guy we've been talking to all service, the radical one, the outspoken one, the guy who couldn't read or write, but dictated his events. Later, he, he would dictate a, a letter to first century Christians, to Christians who didn't have the experience of, of living with Jesus and seeing Jesus and following Jesus, but believed after. He, he's communicating to them, and I think he's communicating to them the very thing he would communicate to you and to me and to those of us watching online. 
You may have not had an opportunity to see Jesus, but the same promise he made me, the same promise he made the disciples and the apostles, he's going to make to you. This is Peter's words. Here's, here's what I need you to do. If you feel like fear is controlling you, if you feel like worry is captivating you, if you feel like it's your boss, he would say this, cast all your cares on him. Why, Peter? Why would we do that? Because I can tell you, and I have experience with this, guys, he cares for you. Cast, throw, hurl all of your worry, all of your anxiety, everything that keeps you up at night, everything that makes you so sick your stomach is in knots, all of those emotions, all of those things that you carry around that, that feel like a burden and make you feel so like, like boxed in that you can't live your life. He says, cast all of them on Jesus because this one thing I know for sure, he cares for you. He loves you so much. He came and he died so you could live. Peter believed it. The 12 believed it. Do you? Peter agrees with the psalmist when the psalmist said this, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear, you are not the boss of me. You will not control me. You will not run my life. I have a different boss. And that boss says he's with me always. And he has, he has overcome life and death. And it no longer matters. Fear. You are not the boss of me. You will not control me. The life of Jesus is an invitation and it's a promise. It's an invitation to follow him. And it's a promise that you can do it without fear. Regardless of the circumstances we all face, regardless of what's still happening in our world. You can follow him. Church, you can fear not because he is with you always. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this incredible God narrative that, that God has been saved and restored and kept sacred for thousands of years. God, that tells this amazing story that if, if we're not careful, we can stand so far away, just look like these isolated incidents. God, but they're all there saying the same thing. Don't be afraid because Jesus is with us. Because there is something greater at work. There is something greater in store. For each of us, that you would give us the wisdom, Lord, to look at our lives and, and to see the areas that maybe we've given into fear, that we've allowed fear to be our boss, to control us and how we live and how we think and, and how we speak to people. Maybe it's even ruined our relationships. And God, would you give us the courage to look that fear and say, you are not the boss of me. I have a better boss. And he tells me, I don't have to be scared because he is with me. God, would you give us that wisdom? Would you give us that courage? Would you help us to take a step in that direction? God, to follow you and to follow you without fear. I thank you for it, Lord. I give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.